Hey everyone, and welcome to the Tight Ship Podcast, where we are in the pursuit of operational excellence. My name is Duncan Malcolm. Have you ever wondered how fast-growing companies manage to maintain their culture, or how you keep everyone working towards the same outcomes when you're growing your team? This week, we're talking to Emmy Gal, who's the co-founder of Brainiant, an interactive video startup. They're doing really well in Europe. They successfully raised $5 million from some of Europe's most respected entrepreneurs and investors, and over the last 18 months, they've grown their turnover by 400%. They've doubled their headcount. Emmy's here to talk to us about how they've kept things running smoothly internally, and I really hope you enjoyed this one. Okay, Emmy, thanks for taking the time to talk to us today. My pleasure. Um, it'd be great to find out a little bit about uh, yourself and uh, Brainiant and how you guys came about, mm-hmm. and uh, then we can go into... Uh, your growth, um, the challenges you guys have faced with your growth and um, how you've overcome some of those and, uh, and then at the end go into what you guys are doing next. Sure. So um, I'm an entrepreneur uh, in technology. I have been once for as long as I can remember. Um, and uh, about nine years ago, I started a software company back in Romania that um, uh, built software cheaply for anybody in the world who wanted to build software. And then that kind of evolved and enabled us to um, launch various ideas. And by us, I mean myself and Andre, who's my co-founder. And then in 2009, we launched Brainiant, which is um, Europe's leading interactive video platform, working with most uh, big broadcasters across Europe, helping them deliver interactive video ads across any platform, any device. Um, So an example of that can be um, you know, you're watching an ad for a BMW and we enable you to book a test drive while you're watching the ad uh, on your mobile device or tablet or, or uh, desktop. And you guys have been quite uh, successful in that respect. You've managed to negotiate some quite good exclusive de- deals around uh, some quite large broadcasters, which is sort of a we like to really think so. solid way to ensure your growth. Yeah, I mean, we've signed um, uh, almost all the major broadcasters in the UK. So we work with ITV, Channel 4, Channel 5, Fox, Sky. And um, we also have uh, half of the broadcasters in France and a lot of broadcasters across Nordics and Germany. So we've, we've done quite a good job um, helping our clients um, deliver interactive video ads because interactive video ads help them make more money. So... It's, a, it's an easy proposition in a way because once they run a campaign with us, they see that the platform provides value and then it's, a, it's more a matter of pricing and commercial terms than it is a matter of should we or should we not use this. Yeah, that makes um, sense. And as a company, we've done quite, quite great. We, 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 we're the market leaders in Europe, uh, in, in most territories at least. Um, we've raised about $5 million from a number of amazing investors in the U.S. and the U.K., including uh, Sherry Kutu, Esther Dyson, Dave McClure in the Valley, uh, Credo Ventures, Atlas Venture, and, uh, and Arts Alliance. And um, in, in 2009, we also won SeedCamp, which is kind of one of the, the leading accelerators in, in Europe. Um, and um, we have customers about 12 markets, we do sales directly in about six, and um, the, the team is about 40-something people. Uh, so we've managed to, to, uh, to expand quite a lot uh, geographically, yeah. and we have 
this very distributed a very distributed team so and that's so you, and so you had a um, you, you had a really in terms of the where your organizations come from you mean you're mm. already working with people remotely but um, the, the people that you've got this going through seed camp and then some of the investors you work with they're used to dealing with uh, some very high growth companies who you know who have to move fast to be able to seize on the opportunity how much were they able to help you with working methodology and how much was it just up to you? Were you able to glean anything much from them or was it really just a case of trial and error? No, so I think, you know, what, what Seedcam's done really well and what our investors done really well is they've introduced us to clients and partners and potential investors. Um, so we, we um, gained a lot by having access to a pretty extensive network of people. But they weren't, they were never involved very, very closely into the business. The, the way our organizations evolved has just been in the, the way we thought was the best way to, to, um, to structure the company. And we obviously wanted to use our uh, Romanian advantage and employ all the uh, technology team in Romania because it's much more cost effective than it is in London. But also because in, in Bucharest we have access to the best talent that is available in Bucharest, whereas in London we'd have to really, really compete on, yeah. uh, on price and benefits with a lot, of, uh, uh, a lot of the big guys, which we wouldn't be able to do. And so let's talk about growth. I mean, how fast are you guys growing? You said um, you initially started with two offices, one in uh, Bucharest, one in London. Yep. You're currently at six. How fast has that happened um, in the last sort of five years? So that's happened in the past. Well, since we started, we've been growing at about 400% uh, year on year, uh, every year. Um, so that's been quite good because it's fueled our, um, it's given our investors the confidence to put in more money and that's fueled even more growth. And I guess our international expansion started about 18 months ago. And we now have you know, sales for France and Germany and uh, Russia and Australia and um and we we're kind of pressing the pedal um, the pedal even more, trying to um, go deeper on some of the key markets in Europe, and then maybe expand to Asia as well. Um, so we've had a great run. I'm uh, and the company is at a stage where it feels like a proper company, um, and uh, <laughs> and uh, there are obviously challenges. There will always be challenges, and it it will always be hard work. But um, being in a leading position as we are in the UK definitely uh, fuels our growth quite steadily. And in terms of headcount, where's your headcount gone in the last sort of 18 months? Well, I think beginning of last year we were about 20, uh, maybe 21 or so. So we've doubled um, over the course of the past 18 to, to 24 months. And... Um, and we now have, you know, it feels like a proper structure across the company because we have teams for every single function that you would need in a company, um, which gives me and my co-founder, Andre, a lot of time to focus on, you know, the, the bigger picture and, and how we move forward. And so we were talking about this before. What sort of um, challenges did you have with the multiple offices and the growing teams? What were the common things that you guys were pumping into in terms of, both communication challenges on a on a on a sort of a day to day basis and keeping everyone in sync, and then obviously mm -hmm. we, we talked about some cultural challenges as well. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So like the, the there are three things that 
are kind of trickier to manage when you're, you have a distributed team. Number one is communication. Um, you're obviously not all in the same location. Can you still hear me? Yeah, yeah loud and clear. Okay. Uh, first one is communication, right? The, the, it's not as easy to just walk up to someone and communicate that you want something done or whatever it may be. And uh, it's, it doesn't always happen that, um, unless you have processing in place, that when you sign a new client, the product team know and they kind of get excited about it. So the, the most important thing for us was creating this feedback loop from all the different offices um, in order to ensure that everyone um, is up to speed with everything and everyone's kind of um, on the same page when it comes to everything within the company. So we've put in a lot of process. We have a monthly general assembly with the entire company and then we have weekly meetings between the different departments. So product speaks to sales every week. Um, the, the engineering team spends a lot of time with the product team and the commercial team. We have people flying from, from all locations to Bucharest or London to, um, to coordinate with, uh, with the, the teams in those locations and communicate with those teams in lo those locations. We also use a lot of, um, we kind of send a lot of stuff via email. We have a, an email address that blasts emails to everyone in the company and that's sometimes abused but most times relevant. Um, and, um, and, and just we, we've had to ensure that there's proper communication between everyone uh, in the company. And can you give an example of the sort of things that were happening before, before you sort of pushed this sort of forced communication? Because I'm assuming that people are initially, based on what you're saying, I'm assuming that before you put in the structure of the meetings and the regular emails and the reporting and the communications that people probably weren't talking to each other as well. What, yeah. You've got yeah. examples of things that you can yeah, so it would often happen that uh, we'd sign a new client, the contract would be signed, and um, the product team had to create an account on the platform for the uh, uh, for the client, and that would never happen because like there's no <laughs> there's no f flow of information from uh, you know the contracts uh, the finance team to to from commercial team to finance team to product team. Um, and you don't think about that when you're all in the same room, right? Because you just go, we've signed this client, create an account for them. But nobody did it in to, a, to, the, to the other location. So we, by putting a bit more um, communication in, in, uh, in place um, and processes in place, it solved that problem. And what sort of um, what sort of tools have you been using to sort of help communication? Obviously, email makes sense, mm. telephones, video conferencing. Mm. So we use uh, we use Trello a yeah. lot. We use um, uh, a project management tool called uh, called Assembla, which is mostly used on the engineering and product side. Um, and other than that, to be honest, we use and obviously we use CRMs and all of that on on the various teams. So various teams use the tools that they want to use on whatever needs they have. Um, but to be honest, what works best still, and I think it's the you know most underrated tool in business, is is email. Um, and uh, we've tried in influencing people to start using tools like you know Slack or whatever else. And at the end of the day, it's just so easy to send read an email that people don't just just don't see the use of of using other tools. 
Um, and that, that works for us really well. Uh, we, we do get a lot of email traffic, but um, it's, uh, um, it, it works. So if it works, don't, don't, don't fix it. <laughs> and do you guys use instant messaging at all? Do you use video chat like we're doing now? Or? We do, yeah. So we use a lot of Skype. We use Google Hangouts. We use um, Google Chat. And uh, I personally use a lot um, WhatsApp with my management team. So I, I have them all on WhatsApp, and we have a group, and we kind of... Um, uh, text there quite a lot. And have you had, had any challenges actually getting people to adopt tools, so new, new members coming into the team? Or uh, I mean, the most common one that I, I've heard as an excuse is either people who are not, who are maybe not hardcore technology focused, or people mm-hmm. who are who are older. I mean, all the sort of the typical stereotypes. Have yep. you have you faced those? So you, you really have to um, give people a very good reason for using a tool, and then you need to ensure that the tool is actually um, uh, enough, uh, simply, sim- simple enough that people get to actually use it. Uh, so, for example, our tech team uses this tool called Assembla, uh, or uh, and no other team in the company uses that tool because it's a pretty complex thing. But everyone in the company uses Trello just because it's such a simple thing to do and they have their different boards and they have their different cards and it's just a no-brainer. Yeah. Um, so we don't really, because we don't have a lot of tools that people have to use, um, we haven't had issues in onboarding new people on, uh, on, on the platform, on the, in the company. But as the organization grows, that may change or it may not. We, we'll just, I think... Teams should be flexible enough to um, kind of uh, adopt new stuff as it becomes needed. Yeah, that makes sense. And in terms of uh, actually bringing people on, I mean, bringing doubling the workforce in in twelve months. What sort of induction processes have you guys brought in? Have you have you got one? How are you keeping your culture? One of the things that mm. um, we've been talking to people like the CEO of Moo and. Uh, one of the things that comes through with all of these organizations on a regular basis is culture, 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 and just mm-hmm. making sure people understand where the company is, where it's going, and, uh, and, and so there is a common vision drive forwards. How yep. do you guys achieve that? Yeah, so that was the kind of the second item on my list of three things that I think are really important when you have distributed teams, which is it's pretty hard to maintain culture um, that is the same across the different offices because you may have one office that works really hard as in late hours and you may have an office that's very productive and you may have an office that's really fun but one that's kind of more businessy. So uh, in order to maintain the same culture uh, across the entire company, we do two things. We spend a lot of time uh, in the hiring process, ensuring that the people that end up joining the team are the uh, are a good culture fit, and we do that by going through an extensive interview process. Like you have three or four interviews, and then after that, you have a meeting with a, um, a number of um, people on the team in order to see whether there's a match. And then on top of that, we have a psychometric test that we. Uh, that we do, whereas we ask people, we send people a survey, they fill out in the survey uh, and kind of asks them personality questions and then we get a dashboard that shows us how they will fit from a cultural perspective with every single member of the team. And we use a, a, an awesome startup called uh, Sabre 
uh, S-A-B-E-R-R, um, to do that. And um, it just helps us ensure that from a data perspective, from a, you know, a psych psychometric perspective, we will have good cultural fit. You've pulled everything second, in as we can, yeah. Exactly. And the second thing we do on the, on the culture front is that we do a lot of cross-pollination. So uh, everyone travels to the, the different offices as often as possible. And I spend a lot of time on a plane um, <laughs> um, trying to instill the brainiant ethos into everyone in the company. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, speaking to the, uh, the head of sales at Stack Exchange in London, they were saying that they had a very uh, similar process where they take people through seven stages to make sure that mm. they both have the cultural fit, they fit the, in terms of all the skills they need, uh, and then take them yeah. and you know, sit down at a lunch meeting, all the various different things, just so that they can just make sure that, that person isn't going to be the, the one that causes all the issues. Of course, and it makes sense, you know, because you, you um, if... I, I'd rather train. I, I'd rather hire someone for being a good cultural fit and train them for skills than the other way around. Yeah, no, that definitely makes sense. And uh, mm -hmm. I, the, the other side of these things, I was uh, just re recently talking to someone um, who's just released a book around scaling up businesses, and one of the things that he found, or he believes, one of the most important things was the marketing, so that you can actually afford to have that long process so that mm -hmm. if you have a position open that you have enough enough candidates that you can filter through and actually say, well, out of the 20 or 30 people that we have coming in, that we've actually, we can say this is this one uh, rather than have a position where you just have one candidate and you're out of Yes, of course. <laughs> and we, you know, we just went through a process of hiring a marketing person and I think we interviewed about maybe 50 people um, just to find two that were in the final and then choose one. Um, so we, uh, we spend a, <laughs> a lot of time and we'd rather not hire someone than hire the wrong person. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I've seen it happen before. Um, I think my uh, colleague of mine who, in our first business, and they just tried to rehire a marketing manager, and they had to get they left after six months to go on something mm -hmm. else. But ultimately, it wasn't a good fit. The person didn't have the they had one side of the skills, but maybe not another, and lacked yeah. some of the other cultural issues. So they kind yeah. of said, so that's a huge loss in terms of time, money, and effort. Exactly. And so, what's number three on your list? Number three is transparency. Uh, so I think. Um, one of the things that you can do well when you're a team in an office is, you know, everything's very uh, transparent to everyone. We've just raised a round. Of course, everyone <laughs> finds out because you go for drinks. And I, I only realized this about maybe um, uh, two years ago that um, unless you spend time ensuring that there's transparency across the entire organization, Top down and bottom up, um, you can get into situations where you find out uh, six months too late that someone isn't performing on the team, or six months too late that you know some client isn't happy, or and so on. So we um, within the company we make everything uh, publicly available from like revenue targets, revenue numbers. Um, um, number of clients, new clients, kind of we're very transparent in terms of everything. We use something called um, OKRs, Objectives and Key Results Planning, 
where we set an objective or more for the company and then key results to meet those objectives and then we, those escalate down to the entire organization. So we have a, a structure that enables us to ensure that every single person from the tester to the, uh, to the commercial director work towards the same goals. And know what and the same goal is, and that's so key for everyone exactly, to know where they're working towards. Exactly, publicly it. available. So you can go into this um, uh, doc that we have, and you can see what everyone's working on in a particular quarter, which is pretty good because you know, it kind of gives you a sense of, of, of the organization. And this was a methodology invented by uh, the founder of Intel that was then taken by Google and Facebook and Zynga and kind of the whole of the Silicon Valley uh, A-list stack. And it really works. It's a simple concept that really, really generates results. I'll have to get some links for uh, the methodology afterwards. Definitely, yeah. It's, <laughs> if you Google OKRP, um, yeah. Yeah, you'll, you'll find it. And then uh, there, was one, there was one last one that, um, that is a sort of, I guess it's a unique to Europe one. Um, mm. but it could be seen in sort of, especially if seen in other uh, places, especially if you're uh, opening in different regional areas of the world, which was the, uh, what, what a European says and what a European means. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, um, when, when people in the US look at Europe, they see Europe. Um, whereas when people in Europe, they look at Europe, they see, you know, France and the UK and Germany and Romania and, uh, Ger and uh, I don't know, Sweden. Um, so every single market is different and therefore um, every single market needs to be approached differently. So, you know, um, in our experience, selling to France is all about lunches and all about schmoozing with the right people. Uh, selling in Germany is all about going through a very rigorous process. Um, selling to, you know, um, Holland or the Netherlands is pretty straightforward, but not as straightforward as Germany and not as schmoozy as France. So you need to find those <laughs> subtleties for every single market. And the, the Americans don't get it. Um, and because we're a European company, we, we know how to do that. And, um, and that's given us quite a big competitive advantage. And have you needed to do cultural training internally, just both on the market understanding side, but also on the side of things where, I mean, this is a classic thing as, as a Brit where someone goes, well, I, I, that's, that's pretty good, but we need to change one or two things. <laughs> and as a British person, that actually means that's, you know, that you really need to start again and come back <laughs> with a totally new thing. And, you know, in um, other places, they might go, oh, wow, that's really great. This looks like, a, this looks like a great, something that I'm doing really well here. I've only just got a little bit more to go. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we, we, haven't, we haven't had to do a lot of that just because when we hire culturally, we hire people that are kind of straight talking because that's how we are internally as a company. So even though they may be, uh, you know, quintessentially British, they are a little bit on the spectrum towards being straight talkers and saying this is shit rather than <laughs> uh, this is amazing, but you have to change it all. Yeah. Um, so um, so we, we really haven't had uh, any instances where, um, you know, we've had culture clash because of the different um, nationalities. Um, uh, and that's a function of the fact that we tried to hire people that from a psychometric perspective 
would get along anyway. So um, then they'll sort out their issues, even though if even though they don't know the cultural differences in the various countries. That makes total sense. And so, what's next, mm. Brainin? You guys are you, you're prevalent in Europe. You seem to have you seem to have owned the entire European market fairly fairly effectively. Um, well, I wouldn't <laughs> say own yet, but <laughs> we are on track. Um, and um, yeah, we, next year we want to accelerate our European growth. Um, we have a we have very very we have tremendous momentum uh, in like twelve different markets in Europe. So we want to accelerate that momentum to go deeper on some of the markets and also try our hand at potentially opening up some countries in Asia. Any ones in uh, particular, or are you just uh, where in Asia? Well, we picked the largest ones, right? We we're thinking Japan and China, but they're yeah. also the the trickiest ones to to sort out. So um, we're doing a bit of a bit of due diligence now to see, you know, how we should approach that expansion and where should we should go first, and um, and who we should work with in order to be uh, so, to increase our chances of success there. That makes sense. And mm -hmm. uh, if people want to get in touch with you, what's the, what's the best way? Oh, it's emmy at .com or I'm on Twitter, I'm on Facebook, I'm on Google. I mean, I'm everywhere on the interwebs. Okay, so if people have got a... People who Say, have... Yeah, whoever has a question, just email me at emmy at .com. Uh, and I'm, I'm proficient at email. That's kind of my, my secret <laughs> uh, power. I am... Uh, Email a hundred emails a minute. You know, <laughs> well, it sounds exciting. But the Asia growth sounds really exciting, and I think that's one of the things that I think is one of the right now. It's a lot of European and U.S. companies are really looking at how they move to Asia and how they how they get into those markets because there are some challenges sure. and. Uh, but the opportunities are obviously quite large. Um, as far as I can remember, the the people who are. Uh, fastest at it are Facebook at the moment um, in terms of having a physical device and some software that are both they're in a, in yeah. a large Asian country. But they're they're you know they're uh, tremendous countries from an opportunity perspective, and they're eager to adopt new technology. You just have to do it right because um, Japan, for example, you you get one chance to do it. You know because if you don't build a, a good reputation from the beginning, they'll they won't work with you. Culturally, that's how they operate. So, uh, China, you know, you need to to almost have a completely separate Chinese uh, offering that is that feels local uh, and is managed by a local person. So, it, there again, there are cultural differences in the go-to-market strategy for each market. Um, but next year, we, we we feel we should take on those challenges. That makes sense for sure. All right, Emmy, thank you very much for your time. My pleasure, Duncan. The sun shines bright as it moves across my face. I feel the light, and everything is in its place. I woke up feeling great, today was made for me And life is good the way it should, the way it was meant to be And it's a beautiful day
children playing in the park while birds are singing. I am walking, I am walking, and I am laughing, I am laughing. Life is perfect, I'm not trying, it's just happening. And it's a beautiful day.